smart politics for stupid times. Welcome to the Unprecedented Podcast with John Aravosis and Cliff Schechter. Hey folks, welcome back to the podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Cliff Schechter, here along with my co-host, Mr. John Aravosis. Hello there, John. Hello there, Cliff. <laughs> um, what do you say about... <laughs> What'd you say about our guest today? I could gush forever. Um, we've, we were lucky enough to have Dr. Tom Segrew here. Um, just to, for, for that, for full disclosure, um, Tom was my advisor and mentor back when I was a young pup. And I think he was a young pup relatively too. Uh, when I went to Penn in the mid nineties, um, Tom is, you know, uh, it was a longtime professor at Penn now at NYU um, what's your what, what is your full title at NYU, Tom? I am professor of history and social and cultural analysis and director of metropolitan studies. Quite a mouthful. Mouthful. It is quite a mouthful, but you just you know you just, obviously that all fits. So uh, Tom was educated at Columbia, King's College, Cambridge, Harvard, places you haven't heard of. Um, he has written a number of books, and most importantly, probably one of the seminal books on what we're what we're experiencing right now um the origins of the urban crisis uh where he went back to his hometown of detroit and looked at uh the post-war um hardening of lines let's call it discrimination the cultural change in detroit but this obviously extends out to the country ranked uh, as one of the 100 most influential books by princeton university press in 2005 a new edition came out in 2014 that also included the bankruptcy in detroit uh, and Tom's also written a couple other books, including Sweet Land of Liberty, The Forgotten Struggle for Civil Rights in the North, which has won millions of awards and uh, main selection of the History Book Club finalist for the 2008 Los Angeles Times Book Prize, and not even past Barack Obama and the Burden of Race, which was 2010, and I could probably go on for a while. Thank you for joining us, Tom. It's great to be here, Cliff and John. And of course, after I give him this introduction that went on for a while, because he deserves it, we now have to go to an ad, and then we'll be back to talk. But it's a quick ad. It's a quick ad. <laughs> All right. Thanks, guys. Hold hang on a second for Literati Books. Wow. People are going crazy for Literati, the number one book club for kids. Wendy tweeted, just got a subscription for my nine-year-old nephew who loves to read. Awesome sponsors, Mama. Travis Bones Nephews. We were on FaceTime. My nephew Emmett ran and got his book and came and showed it to us on camera. They send him stickers so he can label his book so it's his book and not his little that, brother's book. I, that is adorable. I yes. know it. And think of you're in quarantine. You're running out of ideas. And they can keep the ones they love. Send back the ones that they don't. Yes. And how important is that right now? Delivered right to your doorstep safely, right? No more scrolling online trying to find the perfect gift. Parents have got enough things to worry about right now. Yes, and reading books as a family creates a sense of adventure, bonding, whatever, and will keep you from going crazy in quarantine. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and with their curated selection, only keep your favorites. Send the rest back for free. Literati.com slash Stephanie, 25% off your first two subscriptions. Best offer available anywhere. Go to L-I-T-E-R-A-T-I dot com slash Stephanie, 25% off your first two subscriptions. Literati.com slash Stephanie, terms and conditions apply. Okay, we are back, folks. Uh, Cliff, since you know Tom so well, why don't you start, and then I'll jump in as we sort of move along to questioning. Great, but cool. I think pretty much, obviously, we wanted to talk about the topic of the day, the protests, but the idea of having Tom here was to also get a little bit more of a historical perspective, which also hopefully informs us on where we go next from here. That's yes? right. I mean, as, as an expert, currently, we need your... We need your help, Tom, as a country, quite frankly, right now. So you just contributed. I was reading it um, a little bit earlier to Time Magazine uh, had a – I guess is it Time Online these days? 
Um, I don't know if we have magazines anymore. But, <laughs> yeah, uh, <laughs> they gave you. Uh, we were one of the ten experts who who they asked to contribute to how the the George Floyd protests sort of stack up in terms of the history of of protest in the United States. So maybe we should start with that, and and sort of how does this compare to the '60s to other periods of protest in terms of what we're seeing. Yes, well, the Floyd protests grow out of the unresolved issues that 60s protesters took on, police brutality, discrimination, segregation, racial inequality. Uh, and uh, despite all the gains of the civil rights era of the last uh, half century, um, we still have a lot of unfinished business, or maybe in the words of the Reverend King, you know, we haven't quite overcome yet. Um, uh, on the other hand, the, the protests um, this week uh, and part of last have also been different. Um, the crowds on the streets are far more diverse racially than the folks who protested in the 1960s. There are a lot of white folks, um, African Americans. It's it's a it's a it's a new face of protest than we've seen before. Well, can I ask, or, go ahead? No, go ahead, John. Well, I was reading the um, uh, Time magazine did, like Cliff just said, sort of a series of blurbs from experts, and you were one of them on what's going on, and. It was interesting because I read sort of the top of your quote and immediately had a question, and then you kind of got into it at the end of your quote. Um, you were saying something at the top about how, um, you know, there was obviously a lot of unrest in the 60s, you know, violence, destruction of property, lots of things. And uh, but but it it was what caused it, it, it led to real change, I believe you said. And one of the things that I started worrying about, though, is I know I'm from Chicago originally, but I've lived in D.C. now for 30 years, that D.C. was really stuck in sort of this eco economic quagmire since the 60s until really, I'd say, the mid-90s. So like a good 30 years uh, because of the, at least the conventional wisdom was because of the riots. And then finally, economically, you know, God bless Bill Clinton, uh, you know, everything started taking off. But I how... I guess where do you see things going with that? I mean, do do these kind of uh, movements do they do they promote change? Do they set us back? What if, how is how does it? Where do we go from here? Where where will where will it be going? That's a great set of questions. Or is it both? The, I guess is it is it civil rights advancement, but the economic can be set back. I don't I don't know. Well, I mean, the the sixties uprising certainly did not help a lot of African American neighborhood business districts, which were the target of. Um, Vandalism, yep. looting. Um, but on the other hand, uh, cities um, around the country, the ones that were torn by the 60s uprisings, had already been affected by massive white flight for the suburbs, disinvestment. Uh, and uh, so in some ways, the riots, uh, the uprising simply um, uh, uh, maybe accelerated a process that was already for 20, 25 years well underway. Right. Um, I, you know, but, but you get to a bigger point, which is that the um, aftermath of demonstrations and protests on the street can lead to unintended consequences. And I would say on the upside, uh, the 1960s protests raised a lot of issues that public officials, authorities, the White House were simply not paying much attention to, um, uh, particularly the underrepresentation of African-Americans in police departments and city governments and government at all levels. Um, right. The flip side, however, is that um, uh, 1967-68 unleashed uh, decades of punitive policing of the you know, militarization of the police, of the rise of the war on drugs, of 
uh, you know, a real cra crackdown, particularly um, affecting African-American men. It was after the 60s that you see the skyrocketing in um, imprisonment rates uh, in the United States. I mean, that hmm. makes us stand out from much of the rest of the world. And I think some of that was the result of the law and order politics and, and, and backlash hmm. to the protests of the 60s. So what does that mean for now? Do we, are we a different country now that you, you are less fearful of that happening? Well, I think there's some pretty big differences between then and now. One is that um, uh, the protests have seemed to be attracting a, a wider, more diverse base um, now than yeah, in very, very the much 1960s. So. Yeah. And also a lot of uh, a lot of folks who you wouldn't expect to stand up and speak out on the George Floyd murder or um, other incidents of police brutality are coming up and saying, we've got to do something about this, right? We have to respond. We can't simply try to sweep this under the rug again. And right. in the 60s, it was, um, there were the most powerful voices, the most vocal voices were saying crackheads, uh, we need to crack down, we need to enforce law and order, we need to discipline, we need to punish. And today, on the other hand, there's a lot more, um, I think, openness to the possibility of significant reforms. Whether they deliver on it is another question, but, but right. there definitely seems to be a little more openness now than that. Well, well, and the violence, and Cliff, I, I don't mean to jump yeah, in after this, but I've actually been intrigued because I was, you know, I was sort of one of the ones early on about a week ago that was getting very concerned that this was all playing into Trump's hands. Not saying it's not necessary, not saying it's not important to have these protests, but was worried Trump was going to totally turn it around on us. And he tried and seems to have failed miserably at it. Yeah, you to know, be with, clear, with, I want to let Tom talk about his thoughts on it, but yeah. just jumping on this, you know, on the scientific yeah. side, I just saw a poll that I tweeted out. I think it said it was around 64% disapproved uh, of Trump's handling of the George Floyd protests. So already you were actually right. seeing this side. And then there were a number that were undecided. So the, right. approved, the approval rating was, was, I don't even think it was at, at 30%. Right. Um, I mean, that's, you know, I think that speaks to what Tom's saying as about long, it being much more multiracial. I mean, that's staggering. Those, well, as long as some, can I ask guys, as long as some of the disapproval isn't the crazies saying, God damn it, he should have been harsher. You know, that's the, I always wonder about that with these polls. Oh, well, we'd rather have that. I mean, we, they're, they're built into it. They're, the crazies are, I mean, whatever we want to call them, we maybe we should use a more technical term, but the well, Trump but I guess disapprove is still good. Always you're right. Disapprove. What do we care if they disapprove? I mean, yeah, that's true. you're right. If they're unhappy with him, it's still good. Yeah. Yeah. True. Oh, I think I would say this. Um, I mean, sorry. Trump is, you know, Trump, Trump um, thrives on division and conflict. And you could say, uh, if we analogize what's happening in the street to a burning fire, rather than trying to put it out, Trump has stood there with a, with a, you know, a can of gasoline that he's spraying over the fire to try to inflame it even more. Right. Um, and politically, that might have worked in. 1968, um, at least in riling up uh, law and order uh, folks to to run from the Democrats to Richard Nixon. But it doesn't seem to be doing much to win Trump over uh, the votes of the kind of the, uh, the, the, the wide middle, the undecided, uh, the folks who are tired of seeing disruption and conflict. After all, he came off as saying, I'm going to make America great. We, we live in a land of carnage and I'm going to, you know, yeah. uh, um, restore order that again. I mean, a kind of a ridiculous argument in 2016, but putting that aside. Um, and what we're not, we're not, we're not seeing a delivery on that promise. And I think uh, yeah, a lot of voters are going to uh, hold it against him if it continues to be disruptive. 
Well, well you know what? Well, that's kind of my feeling. I would I'll just say quickly. <laughs> oh, yeah, well, yeah, yeah. Go, I want you to go ahead, John. But I mean, you know, context matters in all of this. And had he been like this guy doing a great job, or you know, or at least perceived that way, as opposed to you know having sort of a st- steadily having been the most unpopular president since we started modern polling, never real, never breaking fifty percent. As far as I remember, I don't think he broke 47 at any point. Um, and so and you've got the Twitter rants and the other stuff that kind of puts people off that even supported him um, in the business community, other places. And then you add in COVID and you add in unemployment and and the economy. I, I feel like people are kind of, you know, it's kind of like then this happens. And then, he, you know, in right. some ways he's he's ill equipped to benefit from this, even if he did handle it well. Um, totally. I, I mean, and you know, in. In 1968, Richard Nixon was able to say, I'll restore order. I'll bring peace to American streets because the incumbent, Lyndon Johnson, was presiding over escalating protests and and urban riots. Um, This time, Trump can't say, I'm going to restore order to America's streets because it's happened on his watch. Right. He's the president. Uh, He's not the outsider challenging the incumbent this time around. And even though he tries to play outsider, it's hard to do when you're. Um, sitting in your bunker in the White House uh, and, and America's burning. There's a. I was trying to find the tweet as you guys were talking. Kaylee McEnany, who's the, the new White House press secretary, the blonde Christian woman who speaks very well. She went to Harvard, but she's evil, but speaks very well. Um, she tweeted, oh, I'm not going to find it. She. T- I'm paraphrasing. She tweets yesterday or the day before and says, under this president, you will not have church burnings. You will not have riots in the streets. You will not have violence. You will not have. And she went on. And I was like, uh, He's been president for three years and it literally just happened. Right. They're, they're trying to, I mean, it's, but again, he's been, they've been very good at conning people. Like at first you read that and you think, wow, that's a really strong statement. But then you go, she literally just said what just happened under their watch as if, as if he's just taking over today, <laughs> you know, like, Oh, well, that's what hey. they always kind of try to do. They sort of like Trump's personality defines them, which is what happened yesterday and what happens tomorrow doesn't matter. It's all in the moment. It's right. It's all the moment of justifying, you know, I'm I'm interested, you know, because because Tom, you wrote a book and you talked about race and Obama, too. First of all, I'd Mm -hmm. like to get your thoughts. I still find it, you know, even now. um, And he was obviously one of the great orators of he certainly is one of the great orators of recent political history. Um, But I still find it astonishing that that in the era of George W. Bush and post Iraq and all that, that we are elected an African-American man named Barack Hussein Obama president Twice. by the by the amount we did. I still yeah. am. Uh, I mean, it's, it's still incredible to me in, in a good way. Um, yeah. Do you think in some ways, you know, there, it's, I, I want to know about your book, because obviously there is backlash to Obama. But the, the only the other interesting thing is I looked it up before the show. We were a 76 percent white country. Um you know, a uh, Caucasian country when Obama was elected in 2008, we're, we're down to 60% now just in 12 years, which is sort of incredible. And so maybe, I don't know, I guess I'm asking you to talk about the, uh, maybe the, about what you wrote about Obama, but also if, you know, how much impact, even with the back in terms of affecting backlash, the changing demographics are having. Yeah. I think the changing demographics are crucial. Um, you know, for the last 50 years, a lot of white Americans have been expressing fear about the changing color of America. And that's intensified, um, you know, decade after decade. Um, But their anger, I think, really didn't crystallize until they saw the face of an African-American man in the White House. And, um, you know, I think there's there's a lot to 
um, their reaction to the symbolism of the country going into the hands of, uh, of, of folks who had never had systematic power in the U.S. before. And Trump, Trump brilliantly uh, uh, appealed to that um, sector of the electorate. But, uh, you know, I think Trump also and his, his supporters don't realize that in some ways demographically and politically, they're a fading uh, segment of the American population. They're older. Um, they're being, um, um, uh, you know, the, the country's demography population is being transformed by the dramatic expansion of the Latino population and the you know, stability of the African American population. We're a very, very different country by the day. And uh, I, I see a lot of what's happening under Trump as the last gasp of um, of, of these uh, angry whites to to kind of try to recapture control of the country and look they've been pretty successful i mean they've they've got the courts now for you know a, a, a lot longer than they'll have uh, the demographic power uh and, uh and the political power i think well yeah that's of course you know the disaster of what happened in 2016 you know i mean i guess people forget everybody you know because some people will sit there and say oh that what changes are being look at what's going on and obviously there are a lot of ways the country has changed positively but i'm going to jump in uh, and a lot of ways I should say quickly that the country has not changed. So let's get to that in a second. I'm going to jump in and do our ad because we have to do that for Omaha Steaks. And uh, and then we'll, we'll get right back to our conversation, folks. But I just wanted to say, if you're looking for the perfect Father's Day gift for a father like me, all of you, um, Omaha Steaks can help. Um, what does dad really want for Father's Day? Steak. <laughs> for a limited time, you can find a variety of packages filled with beautiful Omaha steaks, plus other premium meats, side dishes, artisan dish, artisan desserts, I apologize, and so much more. An ideal for dad's special day. I want to say quickly in the middle of this, you guys make me hungry every time I read this ad. I know. It's an ad that actually, I will say, I'll give him credit. It's an ad I kind of go, hmm. I should make sure to like <laughs> eat a lot before these podcasts so I won't go through this. But uh, let's get back to the end. Uh, the packages come flash frozen, vacuum sealed, delivered in a cooler with dry ice safely to the door. It means fresher than fresh, quote unquote. It is all black backed by Omaha Steaks, unconditional 100% money back guarantee. Simple, uh, delicious way to treat dad this Father's Day. Yes, I'm going to keep emphasizing that as a father. And you're giving him something he will actually enjoy. Omaha Steaks offering perfect to send... <laughs> Perfect packages to send dad for Father's Day. And the steaks are clearly smarter than me, folks. They they are more literate, so you should get them for that reason, too. Go to omahasteaks.com, enter the code liberal. You better all be able to spell that if you're listening to this show. Um, into the search bar for un- to unlock savings of 50% and more. With the code liberal, you receive free shipping, a free one-pound package of delicious applewood smoked oh, yes. steak cut bacon. That's John Arabosa's favorite. <laughs> the bacon. Looking to send yeah. him something for non-Father's Day. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in, select, in select packages. There are many more packages available. Perfect for dad. Already to be shipped in time for Father's Day. OmahaSteaks.com. Enter the code liberal to search bar. And folks, please get Cliff a learn how to read online kind of subscription so I can get better. (laughs) You were just. Tom, should we send you a steak too? Or you You're tempting me mightily. I, I want to put down the phone and go right to the kitchen right now. I want uh, the bacon. I'm telling you. know what? No, I laugh because like sometimes you read ads and you're like kind of going, okay, whatever. But that one always gets me with like this bacon. And I'm like, bacon. I feel like Homer Simpson. Anyway. I know. Well, um, I, steaks are, are, are <laughs> I, you know, it's like it's tough as oh. I'll say this. Uh, and I'm talking to two others in similar terrain. I am a liberal guy. I love animals. We have four cats here yeah. in our house. Don't even ask how that happened. It does make it difficult for me because I have to tell you, man, I love steak 
incredibly, and yet I have that guilty liberal conscience for things. So I don't know how I'll ever. You know, uh, I think. I mean, well, well, how about I, I'll do this as a segue? I think it's interesting, and I, I wonder if this is more for liberals than conservatives. But I find as I get older, well, okay, you know what? As I get older, I think on some things I get more conservative because I think you do. Like you worry more about your. Re- well, worrying about retirement, I don't know if that makes you more conservative, but meaning you're worrying more about yourself and your livelihood and, you know, will you survive kind of thing, you know, issues, whereas young people don't as much. Even the virus is a good example, right? But at the same time, as I get older, I find myself getting a little more liberal because because of that worry, you know, worrying about sort of the world overall, yeah. you know, and, and, and no, again, I wonder – but I wonder if that's a I liberal will, thing, though. I don't know if conservatives go – because they always say as you get older, you get more conservative. You know what I mean? So, Well, that, that was that famous quote I think they said that Winston Churchill said that. I'm not even sure he really – did he really say it, Tom? I'm going to put you on the spot. Hmm. Which quote? Oh, if you're young and you're and you're, uh, if you're young and you're conservative, you don't have a heart, and you're old and you're liberal, you don't have a brain or something along yeah. those lines. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I, wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't take an oath on attributing it to, to Churchill, but it's – doesn't sound implausible. <laughs> you know. He said lots of interesting things, some of which don't really yeah. go well today. Um, in any case, if you want steak, folks, Omaha steak's the best. Um, so um, so yeah. we, we were discussing Obama and the election, and yeah. we were talking about uh, – because I, I could see where, where people who are younger could be like – you know, and, and you see this, right? You see it everywhere you see, because people have larger platforms today, so people put their thoughts on social media, other places. People say nothing's changed. And I think obviously for those of us who've seen a lot has changed, um, you know, in a positive way, but that it's understandable, right? I mean, we have these big periods of backlash and we had that to Obama's election. And you were talking a little bit about that, Tom, when we jumped off, which is just Mm -hmm. seeing an Mm African-American man occupying the highest station. Can Um, I put a a finer point on that question, Cliff? Because that's, I wanted, that's funny. I wanted to ask Tom about that because, okay, I'm white, so totally different you know, uh, upbringing in terms of my vision of it. But as a white guy from Chicago, that also per se brings a really, <laughs> I don't want to say interesting view on race, but meaning, you know, I was brought up in a climate that was not as good on, on race in general in Chicago. And to me, seeing a black man elected president and then get reelected was, as Cliff said, shocking at first, meaning I was a big Obama supporter, never in a million years thought it would happen. I thought it was going to be like the old days with Jesse Helms when he would beat everybody, even though the polls were close, because people were afraid to admit they were big. do the black hands <laughs> ad and some yeah. of that, those types of Lee Atwater ads. Yeah. Well, and the polls would always hide the extent of his support because people didn't, they didn't want, they didn't want to tell a pollster we didn't like people, you know? Right. And yeah, it was called the Bradley effect, right? Oh, uh, there, you, right. Yeah, there, there you go. That's right. There you go. Yeah. So it's, you know, and, and then you sort of get to today, the, for me, again, as a white guy, I saw the Obama's election as so significant culturally for white people to see a black man who could lead, who was, you know, normal, whatever word you want to use. I, I also think of this as a gay man. I always felt that when I was on TV, I had to sort of present myself perfectly well-dressed, well-spoken to convince people that we are normal people. You know, and people and – I, and I felt sort of the same thing with Obama that it, it – I was hoping – would have the same effect so that, but I'm curious for you as a, not just student of history, as a professor of history, did Obama's election matter? Cause you also hear black people who criticize Obama. And I, I think, was it Tennessee Coates or whoever, but others who say, you know, it was a lost opportunity. He didn't really do anything. It didn't advance. And they might even point to today as saying, yeah, we had Obama and look where we are now. We're having riots. 
Yeah, I, I riots, think probably, but um, I, I, there's so much I can say about this. But but um, on one hand, I think Obama um, and the election of an African-American president was a, a huge symbolic victory. Right. It, it was a sign that things have changed in the United States, um, especially um, for whites. On the other hand, there were a lot of uh, voters, especially white voters, after Obama's election, like, whew, we're done. It's over with now. We've overcome. We're in a post-civil rights era. Let's turn our attention to other things. And uh, and Obama himself really stayed quiet on questions hmm. of race because he didn't want to be perceived as the pleasant president of black America. He wanted right. to be per- perceived as a president of all America. And so underneath the surface, you know, 2008 came down really hard on African-Americans. And, and you know, uh, the issues like, you know, Trayvon Martin and Ferguson and Baltimore and Charleston were all down there simmering away. Right. But to a great extent, you know, at least among a lot of whites, the attention was devoted to the victory and not what still needed to be solved. And so I, I think the combination of all those things made it um, uh, a more complicated period. I, in other words, I might come down with Tanasi Coates a little bit on, on his criticism of, uh, of some of the limitations of Obama around the question of racial inequality. And he that he only really came to talk about after uh, you know, Trayvon Martin and, and Black Lives Matter. I mean, before that, any, anytime he opened his mouth and said anything about race, he would be accused of being divisive, even right. if the most tepid thing, you know, the oh meeting God, in the right. White House between the white police officer and Henry Louis Gates, the Harvard professor, you know, the so-called yep. fear summit. Um, you know, he did that and he was accused of, you know, for weeks of, by, by people on the right of being a divisive right. advocate of racial conflict in America rather than, <clears> you know, doing something kind of civil. Um, I used to hate that. Yeah, I mean, I remember Glenn Beck. You know, he's a he hates white people and all this kind of stuff. And you'd be like, when people would refer to him as divisive, you'd be like, you mean he's black? I mean, that's yeah. the, the only yeah. thing that you find divisive about him is, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, in a way, I mean, John and I were two people that were, were critical. Sometimes we thought he should have pushed harder. An example would be on the stimulus initially when he won with such totally. a large. You know, yeah, yeah. He, there was a, a there was a national crisis. He'd won in places like Omaha, Nebraska, that electoral vote. He'd won in Indiana, and was more popular than than a, a good. I remember looking at the polls at the time. A good dozen Republican senators from Ohio, Maine, Pennsylvania, Arlen Specter. You know, people like he was more popular than they were. Yeah. And I, I remember thinking, you know, but at the same time, I've often tried to also understand that in a way he had to be like Jackie Robinson, didn't he? I mean, you know, Jackie mm-hmm. Robinson could get kicked, cleated spat on called the n-word and would could not respond because that's what we were dealing with you the the, the first of any group yep. you know in this kind of scrutiny has to be perfect in a way yep so yeah i don't know and i think that i think i mean in my book about obama not even passed um i i make exactly that argument that um obama um obama's only real path to the white house was by making a case that he transcended the long history of racial division in the United States. And that transcendence was both a powerful rhetorical tool for building unity. um, But on the other hand, it also um, meant that he um, held back and was really cautious on some of the still really deep issues that um, divide black and white America. And can I ask you, and I don't know whether, I don't know if you, but since you, you know, since you wrote the book on it, one of the things that always intrigued me with Obama at the beginning, uh, you know, on gay rights especially or LGBT rights, was it, well, it was gay at that point. I mean, because it was it was gays in the military, things like that. And Doma, we were really upset at Obama, and we, you know, I and others really were beating the bejesus out of him. And people would ask me metaphorically, 
but metaphorically, you know, why yeah, do rhetorically, you, you know, why do you think he's doing this? And part of the answer was, as you said, you know, being the first black president, you feel like you're you kind of have to be a model that that everyone's going to take shots at you, you know. And then and then sort of like a woman getting not sort of exactly like a woman getting a senior position too, or a CEO where they feel like if they don't mm-hmm. do well enough, they say, ah, you see, we told you we shouldn't have had women in those jobs, right? But part of me also felt like it was Obama's upbringing. I mean, I wondered about whether whether Obama, because he seemed not to make this all about Obama, but he seemed like somebody who really wants. Uh, wants to get along, wants to get by. I mean, wants to mm-hmm. achieve things. Obviously, the man ran for president, and I think was a very successful president. But he wasn't somebody who really wanted to make waves. And I wonder whether even his upbringing, a black man raised in a white family. I mean, again, growing up in Chicago, growing up in the Midwest. You know, whether whether his whole upbringing was about trying not to make waves and getting by. And whether that didn't influence who he was as president, that he wasn't somebody who was going to say, you know, Bernie Sanders, screw it. We're going for the we're going for broke. That's not Obama. I think you're totally right about that. Um, uh, You know, remember, Obama also came of age during the bitter era of the culture wars and of you know intense racial division. I mean, he was a student at Columbia when blacks and Jews were facing off in Brooklyn, when uh, you know, there were, uh, you know, really acute racial conflicts. And, and his, his strategy has always been, all right, let's, let's be reasonable. He's almost a professor that way. Let's be reasonable. Let's sit down, hear both sides, and try to come to some common ground. I mean, his election as president of Harvard Law Review, the first black president of the most prestigious law review in the country, arguably, um, came because he reached out to the conservatives at Harvard, a very vocal um, you know, early Federalist Society, conservative students, and he said, you know what, I don't agree with you guys, but I respect you, uh, and I'm going to make sure that you have a voice in the process of uh, of choosing articles and, and publishing right. review. I'm not right. going to challenge you. And, uh, and, and he won with an unusual coalition of African-American students who were like, he's going to stand for us, of white liberal students who was like, oh, yeah, I mean, we can finally break through and have a of a, a, a black leader and and conservatives not he's not as bad as some of the alternatives yeah uh, yeah and uh, and that's in some ways is a blueprint for how Obama managed Congress and the first couple of years of his presidency basically saying to Republicans you know if I'm reasonable to you guys you'll come around to the sensible middle of the road positions I'm taking on on lots of things not realizing that they had dug their trenches and were going to fight tooth and nail right. um, even against you know, proposals that were pretty similar to ones that they have yeah. advocated in the past. It sounds very, it sounds very Biden, mm. you know? I mean, look at what Biden was being criticized about during the primaries. And I knew what he was saying, but I think he, in classic Biden fashion, he didn't say it well, but he was talking about reaching out to Republicans and his friends. And I forget who it was who died. It was basically a racist or Cliff, what was that? Remember? And Biden kind of praised him because that's collegially what one does. And everybody was like, how are you praising this guy? Um, but that, who it was. Yeah. I don't, But you remember what it was, though. He made some nice comments about the other side of the aisle, and people were like, are you crazy? And that's very Obama, too. I mean, I never had really realized it until recently that that's one way in which I think both of them got along very well. And people could call that old Washington or the establishment or whatever. But one of the things that I believe made Washington work better earlier is that there was more of a collegiality. We would beat the crap out of each other in the senator. I remember once I saw um, John McCain and Ted. Just to be clear, uh, Tom, John, who was a Republican who became a Democrat, 
um, worked for ah. Ted Stevens. Yes. Well, so started 30, off as 30 a, years a foreign, ago. <laughs> well, it was a while ago. He started off as a yeah. foreign policy Republican in the late 80s, yep. working for Ted Stevens on foreign affairs issues. Uh, and I think you would you moonlight working with Teddy Kennedy on the that side after our after. <laughs> Literally, I would leave around Stephen's office at six and then go to Kennedy's office till midnight working on gay rights stuff. It was bizarre. Um, so wow. my, my two te- my two Ted's there. That'll be my memoir. Um, but no. But what was <laughs> what was interesting was once uh, uh, John McCain and Stevens were both on the Commerce Committee and beating the hell out of each other on some issue, and both of them were just total assholes. I mean, and they would you can imagine the two of them going at each other, and. They walk out of the room finally and back at the committee door. So the staff were following them. They got outside the door shut. Both of them started laughing and putting their arms around each other. It was all a show. And I don't mean that in a uh, hypocritical way. I mean it in a, you beat the crap out of each other on the issues that matter, but it's not personal. And afterwards you could still be friends. And there was, even though they're both on the right, there was much more of that on the right and left before. And that's- You you worked, you said Kennedy, right? I mean, Teddy Kennedy and Orrin Hatch famously had that kind of relationship. But I think you had more of that before, and oh, that, that I guess for me, that's some of the Biden tradition, that's some of the Obama tradition that I don't think is outdated. I miss it. I don't think it's, oh, that was for another era. The one thing I would say about Biden that makes him maybe different from Obama, agreeing pretty much with everything you said so far, by the way, but is that he is more of a bellwether. Um, uh, the fact that um, Biden created these advisory committees through his campaign, included AOC and a number of, of folks who were associated with Bernie and has actually reached out and been, been kind of, you know, lovey-dovey with Bernie in a way that Hillary wasn't. Um, I yeah. think those are all um, signs that, you know, he's, he's, he's going to go where he thinks the base of the party is going. And you can even see that in gay rights, right? He was ahead of Obama. Yes. Uh, uh, and, you know, and, and very, I think very cleverly and strategically kind of put that issue on the table when Obama yeah. was still reluctant to do it. And, and so I might be more optimistic than some people of of my um, political ilk in terms of thinking that maybe Obama, uh, maybe Biden is is movable uh, and uh, in, in, in ways that um, that Obama wasn't always. And we'll yeah. see. I mean, obviously, with it, the proof is in the pudding. But uh, uh I, I could see, I could see, I could see Biden um, um, giving a stronger voice to some of the more left-leaning elements in the Democratic Party than, yep. uh, than some of the other candidates. All right, we are going to break for a really quick ad and then come back, and it's our last ad of the show, so. You're clear and free after this, but uh, now more than ever, we're all thinking about our hygiene. We're washing our hands, sneezing into our arms, but we are still taking a huge carrier of virus with us everywhere. Our phones. Our phones are a vector for disease and we rarely clean them. We are constantly touching our phones with our hands and even pressing them to our face. It's time to take cleaning your phone seriously. The Clean Phone Pro sanitizes using medically proven UV light technology to kill 99.99% of all bacteria that comes in contact with your phone. Better than wipes and safe for your device, the Clean Phone Pro gets every inch of your phone clean with nine uh, high-power UVC lights. Uh, There's a dedicated wireless charging pad on top of the chamber. You can be sanitizing other items while wirelessly charging your phone or just use the Clean Phone Pro as your go-to charging station at any time. It has a fully removable top, which means it's easier for you to fit more items and larger items inside. Go to thecleanphone.com today and get one for just $89 in free shipping when you use the code SEXYLIBERAL. That may already be the price, but if you use SEXYLIBERAL, it guarantees it. Uh, if you're serious about hygiene, it's time to get serious about cleaning your phone. Go to thecleanphone.com and keep your phone truly clean. Remember to use the code SEXYLIBERAL, one word 
for two-day free shipping, and it should ship immediately. That's thecleanphone.com, thecleanphone.com. End of the ads. Woo! Not that we don't love our ads. All right. We love our advertisers. Um, of course we do. You know, you know what's funny, actually? Just like with the Biden thing, you know, ironically, though, kind of one, what you were just describing, Tom, it got me thinking. I mean, and, and Obama may not have done this as much, but somebody who believes in comity, C-O-M-I-T-Y, in bringing people together, in principle, that doesn't necessarily mean that they only want to bring the middle and the right together. They may want to bring the left together, too. So, I mean, it, it's not even... Maybe we shouldn't be so surprised that Biden immediately reached out to Bernie and to AOC and others because he really – he seems to be someone who wants to govern by bringing people together and well, not – what I haven't you know understood, what I mean? so, John, I, I'll say quickly and I want to yeah. get Tom's question, but I haven't understood about some of those on the Bernie left and kind of some of the reactions hmm. to Biden um, because – he has shown this, particularly more recently. He's embraced some of, at least some of Bernie's college plan, right? He yeah. embraced, I mean, or he was Warren's known. Too. People say Delaware. Warren's as well. Give him credit say, too. Warren's yeah. too. But I was going to get to Warren also. Okay. Being from Delaware, I mean, look, he was the, one of the, I don't remember if he's a co-sponsor, but he certainly was a loud voice on the bankruptcy bill that was so terrible a decade and a half ago. And mm-hmm. now he's embraced Warren's position on that. Um, he, he was, you know, as somebody, I've done a lot of work on choice. Um, and you know, he was all with the Hyde amendment, not anymore. You know, he, he certainly was to Obama's left pretty new town on guns. Another issue I worked on a lot. The vice president was the one we were often talking to because he had helped even in favor of an assault weapons ban and and Obama probably because of issues of race tied to it, didn't want to touch the issue. Uh, and then of course, Newtown changed everything on that. I'm just saying, like, he really does, has seemed to be very movable, you know, and willing to talk to people and understand perspectives. And that's a good thing, you know, like, if, you know, if it's just out of cynicism, that's one thing. But I think he really is open God. to moving based upon where if the left is willing to speak to him. And I would think that would be good. I don't know. And, and you know, I think yeah, we put too much, I think we put too much weight on on candidates and politicians' purity, Right. Um, think about Lyndon Johnson. I mean, Lyndon Johnson was a problematic figure for much of his career. Uh, but, you know, he, for maybe reasons of political self-preservation, moved to the left on questions of civil rights. Um, you know, he had a pretty bad record in, in, in Congress and in the Senate in Texas. And um, by the early 1960s, he was um, moving in a very different direction. And so I don't mind when politicians change their views if they change in, in, in the direction that I want them to change. <laughs> Maybe right. that's a, a little cynical myself, but, uh, but I, I do think that, that um, oh, we, we need to um, allow for, um, you know, recognize that political pressure and organizing is essential to changing the direction of, of, of public policy. And, and we should be celebrating the fact that politicians sometimes actually listen and, and bend in response to the will yep. of the people. Um, they, they can travel, they can change. To hear the rest of this episode, become a premium subscriber to the Unprecedented Podcast by going to patreon.com slash unprecedentedpodcast. And with a $5 a month or more subscription, you not only support the show, but you get access to this episode and all of our premium episodes, including all of our great guests. Thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate your support.